Thanks for tuning in to the Fertility Health Podcast, hosted by renowned fertility specialist Mark P. Trollis, MD. Each episode features first-hand advice and potential treatment news, tips, and strategies listeners can use on their fertility journey. And now, here's your host, Dr. Trollis. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Fertility Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Trollis. And today we're going to be speaking about endometriosis and its impact on infertility. You know, of all the things that we see with infertility, endometriosis uh, can be significantly uh, debilitating, uh, the the discomfort that it can give patients. And I often describe it as as two chronic problems. One of them is chronic pain, and the other one is chronic fertility issues. So a little background, endometriosis affects probably about 5% to 10% in the general population. Of course, it's difficult to get a statistic uh, from patients who don't have symptoms. But in studies that you look at for surgeries for a variety of reasons, uh, you'll see something like that. So today I brought a dear friend of mine uh, whom I've known for probably around 20 years. Uh, He is well-versed in the field of endometriosis. His name is Dr. Ricardo Lorette Demola. Uh, Ricardo is professor and chair of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Southern Illinois University School of Medicine, and is the medical director of St. John's Hospital Women's Health Programs in Springfield, Illinois. He founded that uh, Southern Il- uh, Illinois University Fertility and IVF Center, where he serves as its medical director. His fellowship uh, in reproductive endocrinology and infertility was at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, an outstanding program. He's board certified in OBGYN and reproductive endocrinology and fertility by the American Board of OBGYN. He serves as chairman of the American College of OBGYN Illinois section. Uh, He's authored more than 100 scientific publications and presentations at scientific meetings and book chapters. I would go on and on with his uh, resume, but we only have about 20 minutes, so I'm uh, going to stop there, but he is a a, a brilliant individual, and I'm honored to have him on the show. Ricardo, welcome to the Fertility Health Podcast. Thank you, Mark. You're too kind. Uh, Yes, we've we've known each other for quite some time. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, when when we look at the numbers uh, for, for our audience and it seems as though of women with endometriosis, about 30 to 50 percent are estimated to have infertility, and of women with infertility, about 25 to 50 percent are, are are found to have endometriosis. So, what what is this connection, uh, Ricardo? What what is endometriosis, and and why is it having this kind of impact on fertility? That's a great question, Mark, and. No one really knows exactly how endometriosis affects fertility, but it does. And you've already mentioned its strong association. What I tell patients is that endometriosis presents itself either with one of two symptoms, pain or infertility, and frequently both. We don't understand, but we think that there are changes that happen in the immune system and at some level directly on women's eggs that seems to affect fertility. We currently have funding from the National Institutes of Health as well as the Endometriosis Foundation of America 
And we're studying changes that happen in women's biome, and that is the normal bacteria that live in our bodies that interacts with our immune system. And we have found that women with endometriosis have very significant changes in that biome that also seems to be connected with infertility. So probably the connection is at an immune level. We're still not clear how it does it, but it also seems to have an effect on the actual quality of the eggs, which may be very much connected with infertility. Yeah, very, very well said, and, and congratulations on, on the, uh, <clears throat> the research that, that you're going to be doing. We're obviously anxious to hear the results. So just for our audience, endometriosis is simply the normal lining of the uterus, what we call the glands and stroma. They are anywhere in the body where they're not supposed to be. So the lining of the uterus normally has this, and it sheds on a monthly basis after it's built up, but endometriosis is normal lining in abnormal areas. And it, I believe it's been found in every part of the body. And how it gets there, uh, there, there are theories. Most commonly, uh, Ricardo and I, when we were residents, uh, it was Samson's theory of retrograde menstruation. In other words, when, when a woman is menstruating, uh, the, the, the tissue is sloughing and going out through the cervix and the vagina, but also back through the fallopian tubes, and it's, it's literally mechanical displacement of the tissue. But there's, there's other explanations, uh, Ricardo, for the origins of endometriosis, aren't there? Yes, there's other endometriosis. There are people who think that it could be spread through the bloodstream. There's other theories that um, basically say that the tissue is really remnants of when we were little embryos inside of our mother's womb and that somehow gets transported into the disease. But I think even though uh, the theory of retrograde menstruation was described more than a century ago, it is probably, from a clinical point of view from patients, still probably very true. There is a strong association with delaying childbirth and infertility and endometriosis. So it seems that women who have more menstrual cycles may be at a higher risk of developing endometriosis, and there are some experts who believe and advise patients that reducing the number of menstruations in their lifetime, perhaps that could reduce the risk of the condition, but I'm sure that it's more complex than just that explanation. Yeah, and, and uh, for, for once again, for our audience to, to, to know, we, we stage it uh, by the degree of endometriosis that we find at surgery. And, and classically, endometriosis is a surgical diagnosis, okay? You could probably get a good suspicion if you see a, a classic appearing cyst on the ultrasound, vaginal ultrasound typically, where it is a cyst of endometriosis on the ovary, and we classically call the ground glass appearing. It's endometrioma or MRI, but typically surgery. And there's four stages, one, two, three, four, and the degree of involvement and, and invasion into a woman's pelvis and other organs will give us those stages. And so, Ricardo, with, with that little background, the four stages, uh, there's a lot of controversy, and I think it still exists. Is stage one and stage two, which are minimal to mild, 
I am not convinced has an impact on fertility, although certainly three and four, which, which has been shown surgical improvement uh, for fertility. What are your thoughts on, on the low stage of endometriosis and, and also the, 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 the surgeons that uh, will go to a patient who's trying to conceive and do a laparoscopy just for looking for endometriosis? So firstly, what do you think of stage one and stage two, and should people be looking for it? So that's a very loaded question, Mark, but let me try to break it down, and this may take a little bit more time, and this is how I describe it to patients. So back in the late 80s, the American Fertility Society at the time tried to figure out a way to be able to figure out the extent of the disease, but as it relates mostly to pain, and that's how the one, two, three, four came about. But it really was not the best predictor for fertility itself, but you and I and pretty much any fertility specialist in the country pretty much, you know, agreed, okay, it's not perfect, but that's how we're going to measure. But about 10 years ago, um, a physician by the last name of Adamson, Dr. David Adamson, who's in Palo Alto, California, came out with a slightly different theory as to how to stage the disease. And he uh, developed a different type of staging called the AFI score or the fertility, the endometriosis fertility index score or EFI, I'm sorry. Um, so it's the EFI fertility score. And that appears to be a much better predictor and it happens after the time of surgery. So. A doctor does surgery for endometriosis. He tries to repair the endometriosis to the best of their ability. And then he issues sort of an approximation of what he thinks the fertility would be like for a patient as well as some of the other um, markers that um, the American Fertility Society once described and come up with a number. And the, the interesting part about the EFI score is that it really reflects much better the likelihood of a pregnancy. So when we talk about stages one and two, there have been several meta-analyses that seem to suggest that doing a laparoscopy and treating stage one and two of endometriosis improves the odds to having a baby of one in 12. So for every 12 laparoscopies that a doctor does, and removes the endometriosis on those patients, there will be one baby born as a result of that surgery. So then the patients and the doctors need to sort of have the conversation, is one in 12 worth it, or do you go in a different direction of treatment? And that's, again, one of those discussions that happen in the office on a daily basis. When it comes to stage three to four, well, I think we would all agree that that is a much more significant effect on fertility. And depending on how difficult the operation is, how much damage there is to the ovaries and how much damage there is to the fallopian tubes, the EFI score could give us a prediction that perhaps a patient that has a score from zero to two in that um, system 
will have less than a 10% chance of getting pregnant on her own, and those patients perhaps need to move to more aggressive fertility treatments like in vitro fertilization, but a patient with a score of 10 or above has about an 80% chance of taking a baby home on their own, and therefore perhaps more conservative forms of treatment would be equally successful. Excellent points, Ricardo. Uh, regarding the score, the EFI score, do you know if there's literature that will give us information on the outcome uh, of surgery based on how the surgery is performed? In other words, there's endometriosis and there's these shallow superficial implants of endometriosis and then there's deeper implants. And so for many, I know for many years people were using laser to just burn the superficial, but it was deeper involved. And do you know uh, if the outcome of pregnancy is improved with a deeper excision versus just the ablation? Very interesting question. If we use the EFI score, um, it doesn't seem to matter what form of energy you use to remove the lesions. So whether it's removing the lesions, sort of removing the roots from the bottom and excising or removing the, the, the implants of endometriosis from the bottom up, or whether you use any type of energy like laser or uh, cautery, which is just burning the lesions, it doesn't seem to have a big difference. Although most people would favor that removing the, 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 the lesion from the bottom, so what, what it would be an excision of the lesion, be a more favorable outcome than the others. Yeah, certainly, certainly with pain as the, as the metric. Uh, so, I want to switch over now uh, to uh, the endometrioma. Uh, and once again, this is, this is the cyst on the ovary that is due to endometriosis, and it's either within the ovary or sort of an out on the surface, uh, causing the ovary to stick to the wall of, of the sidewall of the pelvis. But what I wanted to get at, Ricardo, is, is we're, we're often, as reproductive specialists, we're often between a rock and a hard place because you have a woman with a large lesion of an endometrioma and if you excise the lesion you're also uh, uh, excising healthy ovarian tissue and advancing her ovarian age. Uh, so when you stimulate they're not going to stimulate as well. Or you keep the endometrioma and it seems as though we're also getting a diminished response to gonadotropin stimulating uh, medication. So. What do you do when you have an endometrioma, uh, when you really know there? Obviously, when if there's a cyst that's, that, that, that you're not sure about, you, you do surgery for diagnosis. But if you know it's an endometrioma uh, and someone's going to, to do IVF, what do you do? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a great discussion to have with patients because I believe, Mark, that the goal of the patient is what dictates the surgery. Let me elaborate a little bit on that. We run into these issues all the time with young women who come in, they send them to a fertility specialist because, you know, they're not ready to have children, but they want to preserve their fertility as much as anybody, even when you have children. And then you have the group of women that you describe, which, you know, 
are they know they have a problem, they want to get pregnant as soon as possible, they're thinking about doing in vitro fertilization. So that's sort of the spectrum. So in the young woman who is not interested in having children necessarily right away, especially if they have pain, all the evidence to this point will suggest that removing the capsule of the endometrioma reduces the likelihood of having the endometrioma coming back, reduces the pain. And this is particularly true if patients are placed on suppressive therapy using birth control pills all the time in what what we call menstrual suppression. So you take birth control pills you know, you finish your pack for three weeks and start another pack right away to be able to avoid menstruation. And when women do that, the chances of recurrence appears to be relatively low, and they can sort of buy themselves some time. There is no question that when you remove the endometrioma completely surgically, there is some normal tissue that is removed. But there's a couple of papers that I've seen in the past couple of years who have followed patients for over a year. There appears to be some level of recovery of the ovary in those young women where their fertility perhaps is not as damaged long-term as we once thought. But this may be different on someone who, say, is in her 40s. So age becomes an important factor here too. Then going back to your original question, what do you do for that woman who is going to in vitro fertilization? And I think that the overwhelming majority of data at this point in time would suggest that we have to be perhaps a little bit more conservative with those patients, particularly if they don't have pain. We're just opening the endometrioma, draining all the cystic material, the chocolate material, as we call it, cleaning the ovary, removing the scar tissue, and doing the minimal amount of work and trying to preserve that ovary to the best of our abilities may give patients the best outcomes. So let's talk about now how do we treat this problem from an infertility standpoint. When do you feel IUI is an option? When do we just say, we want to go to in vitro fertilization? I think that the EFI score is probably the best way to make those decisions because patients at the end of surgery and when we repair their reproductive organs to the best of our abilities and then we get that number, that will give us a pretty good idea of which are the patients who have a low chance of getting pregnant on their own and which patients will benefit from a, from either artificial insemination or in vitro fertilization. In general, I would say that if if a woman is young, and by young I know it's a, a it's a big term, but I would say under 38 years of age, who has a low level of endometriosis and a very good repair of the disease from surgery, that those patients could probably go for 
no more than a three to six month period of time with conservative treatments, meaning fertility medications to enhance their fertility and artificial insemination, taking the husband's sperm, washing the sperm, getting the best sperm from their husband, and placing it closer to the egg inside of the uterus. On the other hand, if you have a patient who is over the age of 38 and she happens to have a more advanced level of disease or an EFI score that's less than 5, those patients should probably go straight to in vitro fertilization, but probably an age may be to a certain degree and the extent of the disease the determinants to go in one direction or the other. Yeah, yeah, a difficult problem. And, and what makes it more frustrating is that it does seem clear that endometriosis impairs IVF outcome to some degree. Um, uh, what, I don't think anyone's advocating surgery prior to IVF just for the sake of looking for endometriosis um, and or treating it to improve IVF. Uh, but, it, but it does, and that, that's an area that seems to be controversial, whether, whether surgical treatment before IVF. I've seen papers uh, supporting that, but also a consensus of not recommending going to a, a duty surgery either. So um, it, 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 there are ways that we try to address the issues of, of improving IVF uh, in patients with endometriosis. I've seen um, there, was, there was at one point... Um, Bruce Lessie was, was doing studies with alpha V beta 3 integrins and looking at the endometrial, uh, endometrium with that. doesn't seem like that is as consistent as before. So, so in our last moments here, uh, how would you optimize the endometriosis patient uh, that's going to proceed with IVF? So I agree with you, Mark, that the literature seems to suggest that surgery, up to three attempts at in vitro fertilization, doesn't seem to provide a significant benefit of patients, except perhaps when someone has an endometrioma greater than three centimeters. On the other hand, there was a very interesting paper that came out a year ago out of a group of surgeons out of Israel that took a group of about 160 patients with known endometriosis that was not treated, and they underwent in vitro fertilization, and they did up to six cycles of in vitro fertilization, and these were the patients who after six cycles did not get pregnant at all. So they were then sent to this very highly specialized surgical clinic in Israel where they did very aggressive multidisciplinary surgery on these patients and removed as much of the endometriosis as humanly possible in many of these cases, patients had their appendix removed, bowel removed, fallopian tubes removed because they had some evidence of endometriosis and did something that was very, very extensive. And then they placed them through in vitro fertilization again. And the take-home baby rates in that study were close to 50% in a group of patients who did not get pregnant with conservative IVF. 
suggesting that perhaps this is an area that we need to re-examine and an area that perhaps we really need more research to try to understand at what point in time surgery is beneficial and when it's not. So I would say in general, for someone without an endometrioma or endometriomas less than three centimeters with endometriosis, up to three IVF cycles, it seems to have a very good cumulative pregnancy rate. It's unclear what happens between three to six, but it's very clear that at six, surgery appears to be beneficial, particularly done by multidisciplinary surgical teams. Yes. So should we offer surgery to patients after three cycles? Should we offer that after four, five, or six? I think that's a big question, but I would argue that if someone hasn't gotten pregnant after three IVF cycles and the data suggesting that a fourth cycle isn't particularly beneficial in those patients, that perhaps those are the patients we should be talking about surgery. So excellent points, Ricardo, and, and certainly uh, given that we don't have national uh, mandated coverage for, for fertility, only about 15 or 16 states, uh, you, you definitely don't want to exhaust uh, a patient's financial resources to keep doing IVF unless you have something that you could uh, uh, make an improvement. So uh, it, it, this has been a, a fantastic talk, uh, and I, I really learned a lot and, and hope you all did. Uh, we have Dr. Ricardo Loretta Mola, and, and our time went much too fast. <clears throat> so I want to thank you all for listening to the Fertility Health Podcast. If there's anything from today's show you want to learn more about, check out the IVFcenter.com for all the notes, links, and tips mentioned in this episode. Thanks for listening to the Fertility Health Podcast. If there's anything from today's show you want to learn more about, Check out the IVFcenter.com for all the notes, links, and tips mentioned in this episode. If you're not already subscribed to the show, please press the subscribe button on your podcast player so you don't miss a future episode. And if you haven't given us a review or rating on iTunes yet, consider leaving a five-star review to help us reach and educate even more individuals in need. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next episode.